All right, well, welcome to Vertical Life Church. I'm Pastor Joey, and uh, this is week two in our series we're calling Back to the Basics. Three, a little over three years ago, we planted this church with a vision that God had given us that uh, we wanted to be a church where everyone mattered to God. And so we started out uh, planning, and our leadership team, we were planning and praying for what God would uh, desire this church to look like and be. And uh, as we were searching the scriptures of what, really what a church looks like or supposed to look like biblically, we saw really that there were six kind of six things that kind of leaps off the page of the scripture when we looked at that early church and beginning in Acts chapter 2. And uh, so we're going through uh, this series for six weeks, looking at the six different core values that we have here uh, at Vertical Life Church. And today, the core value we're looking at is our value we call unyielding truth. See, Vertical Life Church, we believe that God has communicated truth to us. And primarily, he has communicated that truth through his inspired word we call the Bible. And we don't try to make the Bible say what we want it to say so we can live however we want to live. No, what we do at Vertical Life Church, through this value of unyielding truth, we search the scriptures to see what God has to say about how we should live, and then we pattern our lives accordingly after that. That is, that is our desire, that we would live wholeheartedly, live for the honor and glory of God. Jesus, in John chapter 8, he said this. He said, you are my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. That's a very important statement, that which means as a disciple of Christ, we're to be faithful to his teachings. Well, in order to be faithful to his teachings, that means we need to not only study, but to know his will for us. We need to know what his word says so that we can honor him and be faithful. And uh, we just wrapped up a series on spiritual warfare that we called The Fight for Your Life. And in that series, we, we unpacked and discovered how every believer in Christ is facing a spiritual battle every second of the day, that we're wrestling against spiritual forces at work against us, that we have an enemy. His name is Satan. Him and his angelic army, his demonic army, is hell-bent on destroying our lives. And he does this by getting us... Uh, to fall for his schemes in very subtle and crafty ways. Ultimately, he gets us to destroy our lives ourselves. He gets us to destroy ourselves. And the way we do that is by empowering him to work freely in our lives through sin. And knowing the nature of this battle, God has given the church, rather every believer in Christ, every follower of Jesus, God has given us armor, so that not only can we stand against the enemy in this fight, but we will also rise up victorious over him in the fight for our lives when we make our stand. And part of the armor that God has given us is a weapon. I like weapons. Weapons are fun. You know, when I was little, I used to you know, order out of all the karate magazines, all like the, the swords and ninja stars and stuff like that. You know, I, I think it's fun to, to have weapons. Now we have guns and things like that. We go shooting, and, and, uh, and it's just very, very fun to, to participate with things like that. But God has given us a weapon for a specific purpose, not just to entertain ourselves or not just to have fun or think we're cool or act like because we saw one too many karate movies that we're now an expert in martial arts. No, God gave us a weapon called the sword of the spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul to the church of Ephesus says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the word of God. 
the Bible is not just a book, it is a weapon. The Word of God is one of the weapons God has given us to fight against our enemy. So it's vital that as followers of Christ that we become skilled in using this weapon if we're going to be victorious, not just in defeating the enemy in battle, but also being faithful in honoring God with our lives. As a disciple of Christ, we should continually be growing in our relationship with God, becoming more intimate and closer with God. And part of growing with the Lord is not just reading the Bible, but absorbing His Word, meditating on His Word, and letting it permeate deep within our souls. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he said this. He says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. The righteous are blessed because they don't follow the advice of the wicked. They don't stand around with sinners. And why is that? It's because they delight in God's word. They delight in his message, his will, his teachings, and they meditate on it day and night. As Christians, we should grow in our knowledge of the word, in our understanding of the word, and even our application of the word. Perry Noble, a pastor, once said, information plus application equals transformation. It's not enough just to know what the Bible says. It's how you apply it to your life and live, th live that out. If we're not growing in the word, we can't be growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if we're not growing as a disciple, then we will be ill-equipped to face the enemy in battle. You see, Jesus, our Lord, he was no stranger to the attacks of the enemy either. Just before he began his ministry, healing and teaching and performing miracles, just after his baptism, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit led him out into the desert for 40 days. And there he fasted. That's a super churchy word that means he didn't eat. Right? He didn't eat so that he could be fully dependent on the Lord for his provision. All of his strength, all of his energy, everything he wanted to come from God. He placed his total dependence on the Father. And during his fast in the wilderness, Satan showed up. Like that's any surprise. Satan likes to show up when we're at our weakest. When it feels like we have no strength. And Satan shows up and goes to battle against the Lord. And we're going to take a look at this account and see... Jesus used the sword of the Spirit to fight against the enemy and discover how we can use the Word of God to stand victorious against the enemy's attacks. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can uh, flip there to Matthew 4. If you have your digital version, you can uh, navigate there now if you have signal in the auditorium. But Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 through 11, the verses will also be on the screen. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible records this. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The Scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city in Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scripture says he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. 
Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him. Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example that we see in the life of our Lord and Savior. And God, I pray now as we unpack this situation, this, this scene between Satan and Jesus, God, that you would speak to our hearts and our lives. You, Holy Spirit, go now and begin revealing the truth. Apply this truth to our lives so we know how that we can pattern ourselves after your will so we can stand victorious in battle, how we can learn and know and understand the word of God so we can become experts in wielding the sword of the Spirit and become victorious against the fight against the enemy. We bind Satan, his works, his servants, and effects, everything that he has planned to come against us now in the name of Jesus. And we just stand here in total dependence on you, Father. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we see Jesus weather three attacks from the devil, from Satan. And after the last attack, it says the angels came to minister to him. But in the book of Luke, the same account, talking about the very same story, Luke says something a little different. Luke chapter 4, verse 13, Luke records this. He says, when the devil had finished tempting him, he left him until what? The next opportunity came. You see, this spiritual battle that we're in, if Jesus had to battle Satan multiple times, it stands to reason that we're going to have to wrestle with him multiple times as well. That, that if Jesus didn't just have to face Satan once, it stands to reason that we too will face him multiple times in our lives. And so we need to dig into what the Bible is revealing and how Jesus fought against the enemy if we're going to stand as faithful servants and disciples of Christ. You see, Jesus was not able to stand against the devil just because he was the Son of God. You see, the Scripture reveals that even though he was fully God and fully man at the same time, how that works, I don't know, don't ask, but he was fully God and fully man at the same time, Scripture reveals that he limited himself in his human form so that he could be tempted just like we were and rise up over it without any sin. And we see here how Jesus is tempted in these different ways, and he was successful in every temptation, not because he appealed to himself, but because he appealed to another authority. And that authority was the very word of God. In every temptation, he appealed to the word of God. In the temptation to make bread, Jesus said, as the scriptures say, or another translation would say, as it is written. In the temptation to jump Jesus responded, as the scriptures say, or as it is written. In the temptation to bow and to worship the devil, Jesus responded, the scriptures say, or as it is written. In every temptation, Jesus appealed to the scriptures, the very word of God, to stand against the enemy because the word of God is our weapon. It's the sword of the spirit. And by standing on the word, trusting in the word, and using the word in battle, we too will be able to stand victorious against the enemy. When Satan comes against us, we have to recognize that his power is also limited. The only way Satan can enter into our lives and begin to bring dysfunction is by getting us to sin in some way. We know that is how he opens doors into our lives. But before he can do that, he doesn't have authority to just come in and, and take over. He has to get us to believe a lie or a web of lies. He lies to us and he manipulates, he twists the truth, he creates a web of lies so that as we believe those lies, we will then act upon that belief, which then leads to sin. 
And this is what we see happening here in this temptation. Satan is attacking the unyielding truth of the word of God. He's manipulating and twisting it in in an effort to create doubt in our Lord and expose weakness in his faith. And I believe there are three main areas of focus that Satan has zeroed in for attack in this temptation, attacks on the truth. And as we look at these, we're going to see the truth in action. We're going to see how if we remain faithful to the Lord's teachings, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us what, church? Free. Jesus said, if you remain faithful to my teachings, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The first area of attack, and if you're taking notes with you, you can jot this down in your worship guide. The first area of attack on the truth is in identity and foundation. Identity and foundation. In verse 3 of chapter 4 of Matthew, it says, During that time the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. The first thing I notice here is that Satan didn't ask Jesus a question. He didn't say, Hey, are you the Son of God? No, he said, if you're the son of God. This was an accusation. This was him trying to create doubt in Jesus, to create doubt in who he was. This was an effort of Satan to goad Christ into uh, responding with a comment with pride. Like, you're not the son. You think you're the son of God? You're not the son of God. If you are, prove it. Prove yourself. Make these stones into bread. And what Satan was wanting was for Jesus to respond with something like, yeah, you don't think I'm the son of God? I'll prove it to you. Not only am I going to make bread, this is going to be three cheese Texas toast with a side of garlic butter sauce. This is going to be some awesome stuff. You better wait. Hold on to your horses. Watch this. This is what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. And, and by doing that, if Jesus had responded like that, it would have revealed an insecurity in him. It would have revealed some pride and a lack of understanding of the word of God or who he was. But because Jesus knew who he was, he had a firm grasp on his identity. He didn't need to prove it to anyone. You notice that whenever you know, sometimes you know, people are, are kind of rubbing each other the wrong way, you have a couple of guys who are staring each other down like they're going to fight, it's usually the guy that knows he's bad that's not saying anything. It's the guy that has an insecurity problem that thinks he's got to prove himself that is mouthy and trying to get the fight going. This is what's happening here with what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do. But he was fully secure in his identity and in his relationship with God. But this is what gets us into trouble many times. What causes us to fall into the enemy's trap because ultimately we don't know who we are in Christ Jesus. We spend a lot of time talking about identity because this is so fundamental to our relationship with God and our Christian life. You see, Satan often attacks our identity, especially after we fail or we make a mistake or we do something wrong or we go through a difficult situation. And he'll say things like, after what you did, you think God can love you? You're a child of, you're a child of God? After your past? I mean, how could God forgive you for that? How could anyone love you after all you've done? He implants these attacks on our identity. And that doubt many times drives us away from God because we feel like he can't love us. It drives us away from the very God who's wanting to forgive and restore. 
But he uses these attacks on identity to rob us of our hope, to make us believe that God can't love us, that we'll never be good enough. And we get caught up in depression and give ourselves over to destructive things in an effort to try to numb the guilt that the enemy is laying down in a real way. You know, there's a common phrase we like to use in the church, and it's something like this. It says, I'm just a sinner saved by, what is it, church? Grace, right? We've heard that. It's very common, you know, especially when people are, are talking about Christianity. But I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And, you know, ultimately, that's true. It's true that before you can begin a relationship with God, before you can be what we call saved, have your sins forgiven, we all have to get to a point where we recognize we are a sinner and hopelessly lost. That there's nothing within ourselves that could, could be good enough to become right with God, to change our situation with God. We have to turn from our sins, repent of our sins, and turn to God through faith by trusting in his one and only son. That's how we get to Jesus. That's how we get to God. It's true. Every one of us has to approach God the same way, and that is admitting that we are a sinner. But too many times, that's where we get stuck, at the sinner part. We get stuck thinking about identifying ourselves at the sinner part, which is very negative and depressing. And as long as we're constantly thinking about ourselves as a sinner part, then it's no surprise when we sin. Therefore, it's no surprise we feel guilt and shame and then are bound down by all the negativity. But see, the part that God focuses on isn't the sinner part. It's the part that transforms and changes a person. It's the saved by his grace. See, to know that I was hopelessly lost. I was hopelessly lost, and within myself, I had no ability to change my situation before God, and he looked down at me and said, you know what? I got you. I'll take care of that. That through Christ, he changed my status for me, that he forgave me. He came to even live in my heart, and now through him, I have been set free from the power of sin and death, and I'm free to live a better way. That changes things. That I don't have to live as a rejected sinner because I'm free to live in a life for the most high God. I'm free to live free from the power of sin and death. I'm no longer obligated to obey my sinful nature because I'm not a slave to my sin anymore. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I'm adopted into the family of God. Sinners sin. And we will continue to wrestle with sin until Jesus Christ returns and changes this sinful flesh into a perfect body. But there's a difference between works in the flesh and self-will or rebellion. You know, a Christian will continue to struggle with things like losing your temper and saying something. You, is that a character when you lose your temper? Things like that. We're continue to wrestle with works of the flesh. But to turn your back on God and say, God, I'm going to live my own way, do my own thing. I don't care what you say. That's a whole other story. Sinners are going to sin. Christians are going to struggle with works of the flesh. But a person who sees themselves as a sinner has no reason to believe they can live better or make better choices. And chances are, with that false truth, that false belief, it won't be long until they give up on trying altogether and saying, you know what, it's no use. I'm just going to give in to my struggles. But a person who believes, not that they're a sinner, but they are saved by grace, 
doesn't carry the weight of the law on their shoulders any longer. They know they're free to live for Christ, not being bound by the works of the law. And because they're free, they are less focused on avoiding what is wrong and more focused on doing what is right. It's more about how you love than the laws you keep. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul tells the church of Rome, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of the law. Those who identify with being saved by grace focus on his love. It is a positive motivation that directs us on the path of righteousness. And because we're focused on doing what is right and not what, like forsaking what is wrong, we won't put ourselves in situations where we have the opportunity to do what is wrong because we recognize that's not loving God by putting ourselves in those situations. We won't participate with unholy things because we recognize that's not loving the who God has put in my life or loving what God has given me in my own body because I know who I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace. A person saved by grace doesn't hold forgiveness back from those that have hurt them because God has forgiven them infinitely for all that they've done against God. And so why should I hold forgiveness back from those who have hurt me? A person saved by grace doesn't withhold grace from those who are struggling with something they can't seem to overcome or maybe just rub them the wrong way or they can't see eye to eye and they constantly battle with each other. We give them grace because God has given us grace. That's why we're saved by his grace. And if God is infinitely patient with me, then how much the more should I be patient with those who I struggle with for the sake of love? See, Jesus wasn't duped into a negative attitude, a negative behavior, violating the word of God or will of God because he knew who he was. And the confidence in that identity informed him on what behaviors and attitudes he would or would not entertain. And how did he know who he was? It's because his foundation was the unyielding truth of the word of God. Though he was fully God, at the same time, he was fully man in the flesh. And as a man, he recognized his entire identity and ability to discern what is truth came directly from God's word. And he knew that any deviation from the unyielding truth of the word of God was a lie, which is why he placed his entire trust, his entire hope, his entire faith in the scriptures. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul tells the church of Rome, he says, then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without the word of God, none of us can be saved. You have to hear the word of God in order to respond to the gospel message. Though without the word of God, none of us would have been able to have a new identity in Christ. The new identity that positively redirects our lives, that positively shapes the outlook on our lives. This identity that informs us how to live and believe. This is so vital. This is why the foundation, not just of our belief, but of our identity, resides with the starting point of the unyielding truth of the word of God. Because that very truth exposes the lies of Satan and sets us free from his power. The word of God really has two forms. The first form is the written word. This is the Bible. This is the scripture. This is what we have that we carry with us in our hands or on our phones. It is our foundation. It's our standard. It's our measure for faith and practice. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
The Bible, the scriptures are our foundation. It's our primary resource for knowing and discerning the will of God. God's will for us as believers is to be so familiar with the scripture that it permeates every area of our life. Every area. You have the written word, and then number two, you have the spoken word. This is the voice of the Holy Spirit. This is divine wisdom in the moment where you're not sure what to do and you pray and you receive revelation from the Lord. This is a prophetic word from a brother and sister in Christ through the inspiration of the Spirit to give you wisdom on your situation. This is knowledge you would never have known before that you're given in a moment to minister. This is understanding of the Word of God and how to apply it to your life. Jesus said that we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Bible is inspired, literally it is breathed out, but also we have a relationship with God himself through the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he'll tell you what he's heard. He will even tell you about the future. When we engage in our personal relationship with Christ as his children, the spirit of God in our everyday lives, we may receive a word from God, a word of wisdom or instruction or understanding regarding a particular situation in our lives or in the lives of someone else so that we can help minister to them. You know, it's very common. There's not a verse for every situation in our lives. There are principles in the scripture, but there's not necessarily a verse for every situation. But the Holy Spirit is in step with us every step of the way. And it's important to understand what Jesus is saying here of the Holy Spirit so that we're not dismayed or fooled or manipulated by every wind of new doctrine or false teaching. Jesus said the Spirit of God will guide us into all truth because he will only speak the things which he has already heard. As we are engaging with the Holy Spirit, he's going to reveal what he's already heard, which means he's not going to contradict the written word of God. He's not going to contradict what's already been communicated. If any revelation contradicts the written word of God, we know without a doubt that it's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 4, chapter 1, or chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. There will be those that say that they they speak for God, that they've had revelation from God, and you yourself, as you're praying, may even hear a voice that sounds like it's from God, but we know if it contradicts or encourages disobedience to the very word of God, we know it's not of God. The Holy Spirit will reveal the truth, the truth of the written word of God for application in our lives today to empower our faith as we go into the world to make disciples. The spoken word works in tandem with the written word for the perfecting of the saints. The first attack of Satan on the truth was in identity and foundation. And here at Vertical Life Church, we believe at the core that we are children of God, saved by grace, and our foundation is the very word, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Number two, the second area of attack of Satan is on knowledge and on understanding. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, records this. It says, the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. This should cause some pause because here Satan actually quotes the Bible to Jesus. 
He quotes the scripture right out of Psalm 91. He quotes a promise to Jesus. And he's trying to trip Jesus up the same way he did back in the Garden of Eden with Eve as he kind of twists and manipulates the truth of God's word, putting a spin on the truth. He wanted Jesus to make God prove his faithfulness as if God had not already proven it by sending Jesus into the world. But here he's trying to get Jesus to make God prove himself, prove his faithfulness. And if Jesus had not known who he was, if he had not been rooted or founded on the foundation of the unyielding truth of the word of God, he might have heard that verse quoted and thought, you know what, that kind of sounds right, and then went for it. And that's where we get tripped up. See, many cults go door to door. And they start conversations by opening the word of God and they begin to quote the very familiar and popular verses. But then over the conversation, they begin to open up their writings and what they consider to be more authority than the scripture. And that's how easily it is for Satan to come in, twist the word of God and lead people astray. And many people have turned their back on their Christian faith simply because they had no foundation. They didn't have a knowledge or understanding of the word of God. We hear something that sounds good, but... There's just enough deception in it to be destructive, and that's how he attacks. It's subtle. He tries to convince you that you're doing something right while ensuring that you're doing everything wrong. I had an elderly, church, uh, elderly lady at a church I was working at one time come up to me after we were doing a study in the book of Revelation, talking about the end times, where Jesus comes back and he sets up his eternal kingdom. He's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And after that study, this, this lady who had grown up in church her whole life, she was like a charter member of this church. And I'd never seen a son have been to a church on a Sunday where she wasn't there. She'd been there all the time, very faithful. She comes up to me and she says, hey, Joey, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah, what's up? And she's like, was God on the throne in the book of Revelation? And here I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, God's usually the one on the throne. You know, when you read the Bible, the only one on the throne is usually God. So, you know, but I was like, yes, yes, it was God. She's like, oh, okay. I thought that's what you were saying. And here I'm like, you've been in church your whole life. You've been to every Sunday school class. You've, you've had a Bible longer than I've been alive, and you don't know that God's on the throne? I mean, that, that, I mean, that just blew my mind. And I'm thinking, how easy is it for Satan to twist and manipulate and, and fool us when we have no foundation? How easy is it for him to get us tripped up in false belief and believing lies when we don't even know God is on the throne? Because there's no knowledge and understanding. You see, just because you're old and you've been a Christian a long time doesn't make you mature in the Lord. What makes you mature is your knowledge and understanding of the word and your application of that in your everyday life. See, knowledge and understanding are vital. And Jesus' reply to Satan revealed not only did he have knowledge of the scripture, but that he understood the intent of the scripture and also the character and faithfulness of God. He knew it. Jesus knew that to tempt God was to doubt God and therefore would be a sin before God. And he resisted. Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden it. It's there. The reason why we walk through life falling for Satan's traps is because we don't know the will of God primarily because it falls on our lacking biblical literacy and understanding. 
How are we as disciples of Christ who have been commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? How are we each individually who've been commissioned by Christ to be a disciple who makes disciples, how are we able to instruct others if we don't know the word of God ourselves? We can't do it. Knowing and understanding the word is vital to our spiritual lives, and to our each individual ministries. 2 Timothy 2, 15, Paul tells Timothy to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To be approved unto God requires a study of the word of God and the ability to rightly divide it. It means to understand it and to be able to communicate that. Paul tells Timothy here in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study, not to skim. You can't get what you need from the Lord and get the knowledge and understanding that you need in the Word with a five-minute devotional each day. You know, there's a problem in our day, and it's not just in this church. It's all around in Christianity where more people are reading books about the Bible than actually reading the Bible. When if I were to ask somebody, hey, what, what books are you reading right now? It'd be, oh, I'm reading the latest Francis Chan, the latest Craig Rochelle, I'm reading Beth Moore, or, 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 or this, that, and the other author, you know. I, I never hear somebody say, man, I'm reading Zephaniah chapter 2. That's what I'm reading today. I'm getting me some Haggai in today. You know, I don't, you don't hear that. But the word of the Lord is the sword of the Spirit, not what Craig Groeschel thinks about the Bible. It's more important that we read the Word and invest ourselves in the Word than what somebody has to say about the Word. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. You want knowledge of the holy, it's found in His Word. If we want to increase in understanding, we need to increase in our knowledge of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning. You will hear and increase. Growing in your knowledge and your understanding of the word is vital. To live out this value of unyielding truth in our church, we need to study his word. We need to meditate on his word. We need to seek counsel over his word. And we need to cherish his word as the only true path to freedom. Satan attacked our identity and foundation. He attacked our knowledge and understanding. And number three, he attacked our love and obedience. Verse 8 of chapter 4 of Matthew says, The next, the devil took him to the peak of the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says, I'll give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The temptation of Christ mirrors what Satan was doing at the fall of man where Satan tempted Eve and he was trying to get Jesus here just like he did Eve to believe she was missing something. He told Eve that, that, that you need to eat the fruit because you're missing something. And just like he's talking to Christ, he's saying, bow to me because you're missing something. You're missing something that can only be found in the world. And this is the same thing that he says to us when he tempts us and tries to attack the truth. He tries to attack our identity, attack our foundation, attack our knowledge and understanding, attack our love and our obedience. He wants us to believe that we are missing something that can only be found through him out in the world. But in James chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, You adulterers, 
Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. There is nothing that this world has to offer us, but only that which brings distance between us and the Father. I'm going to say that again. I know I'm preaching good now. There is nothing this world has to offer us, but only that which brings distance between us and the Father. That's it. That's it. Salvation belongs to our God. Healing is in his hands. Comfort is in his words. Joy is in his presence. Community is in his people. And love is found in his dear son. The word of God says, as children of the most high God, we are joint heirs with Jesus. That means everything Jesus is set to inherit in eternity, we get to inherit as well. Which means there's nothing Satan has to offer us that's not ours already. Just like all the kingdoms of the world already belong to Christ, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is nothing Satan could offer Jesus that wasn't already his. The same is true for us. There's nothing this world has to offer that is not already ours in Christ Jesus. And ultimately, this temptation against our love and obedience targets the question, who are you going to love? Who or what? See, in the God of the universe, you'll find everything you need. But the God of this world plans to steal, kill, and destroy. You have the Lord and you have the devil. And our love and obedience are tied together. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, then obey my commandments. If you love me, then just obey me. Obedience reveals the target of our love. Your obedience reveals the target of your love. And Satan wants nothing more than to rob your heart of the word of God, to misdirect your obedience, to steal your love and destroy your life. Satan wants you to say, I'm going to obey this so that ultimately you love this world more than you love the Lord. And we read that those who love the world become a friend of the world make themselves an enemy of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an enemy of the Lord. So every time we say yes to the devil and no to God, we're choosing to change the target of our love. Say, okay, I'm, I won't go to church even though I know I should. All right, I'm not going to tithe even though I know I should. Or I'm not going to serve even though I know I should. Or I'm not going to stop the addiction even though I know I should. Or I'm not going to confess that sin and bring it into the light even though I know I should. I'm not going to make spending time with God today the priority in my day even though I know I should because honestly, my love is going to be directed to the world today. See, every concession that we face, every temptation, temptation we face reveals the target of our love. And the more we love the world, the farther away our hearts go from God. It's harder to read the word when our hearts are away from the Lord. It's harder to pray when our hearts are away from the Lord. It's harder to gather for worship when our hearts are away from the Lord. It's even harder to tell others about Jesus when our hearts are away from the Lord. And Satan is working hard to pull our hearts away from the Lord. But by letting the unyielding truth of the word of God define our identity and be our foundation, 
when we search it out only as our source of knowledge and understanding and we let it direct our obedience and our love, not only are we going to stand firm against the enemy, but all of his lies and schemes will be exposed and we will raise up over him in victory as we honor Christ with all that we are. Psalm 119, 105 says this, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. My question for you today, church, is what is your relationship with God like today? Have you even begun a relationship with God? Has there been a time in your life where you said, you know what, God, I recognize I am a sinner. Your word reveals that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God before you. I'm nothing but a sinner, but you know, I'd really like to be saved by that grace. I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ today as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and be my Lord. I give you my life today in Jesus' name. If there's never been a time in your life where you have called out to the Lord, today could be a day where you begin to set your life on the foundation of the unyielding truth of the Word of God. Is the Word of God your foundation? Are you purposed in your heart to grow in your knowledge and in your understanding? Does the word of God direct your love and obedience? Maybe you're here today and you need to make a commitment that from this day forward, you're going to be a student of the word. You're going to dig in and you're going to meditate. You're going to eat. You're going to gravitate to his word each and every day to know his will. Maybe you recognize that there's some steps in your life you need to take to be obedient to the Lord. You've been doing some things that are out of disobedience. You recognize that, but it's been really hard to, to admit that and to take steps to walk out of that disobedience. And today you realize that, you know what? My love hasn't been directed in the Lord. And I'm ready to redirect my love to God and submit myself to the unyielding truth of the Word of God. Whatever is going on in your life today, in just a moment, we're going to bow for prayer and we're going to open the service for response. I invite you to step out and come forward and take your cares and burdens before the Lord. Confess your sins to Him. Make your commitments before God. Say, God, before you today, I'm going to choose to be a disciple of Christ who remains faithful to your teachings. I'm going to remain in your truth because I need to be set free. Whatever God is dealing with you in your heart, maybe you recognize you need to be baptized. Today, we're going to have a baptism service. You may not have signed up, but you know, I need to be baptized. I need to make that commitment. Well, it's not too late. Come see me after church. We'll make it happen. Whatever God is working on your heart, now is the time to make the decision. Let's bow our heads for prayer in this place. Father in heaven, God, I pray for the church. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you did not leave us defenseless on this earth. But God, through your word, you have given us a weapon that the enemy cannot resist, that the enemy cannot stand against. You gave us a weapon that opens our eyes to his schemes and the evil things that he tries to get us to participate in to bring dysfunction and destruction into our lives. You gave us a weapon that leads us onto the path of everlasting life, the path of righteousness that leads us into the abundant life that you have called us to live through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for your love and grace. We thank you how there's no distance we can run where we can be far away from your presence. You are ever near. You are ever close.
You are the father to the fatherless. You are the husband to the widow. You are the comforter to the hurting. You're the strength for the weak. You're the shelter for the fearful. And God, we just appeal to you today that from this day forward, we would be people who stand firm on the unyielding truth of the word of God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.